Welcome to another episode of Bucky's Bunker here on our Miami Valley Golf podcast. The purpose of these podcasts is to record stories of our game's rich history, interview interesting people, and share information to help us all enjoy this wonderful sport just a little bit more. In this edition, Bucky Appers invites John Marshy, and the two share the Marshy family legacy right here in the Miami Valley. Well, we're joined here today on Bucky's Bunker, not just by Bucky Albers, but also PJ Master Professional John Marshy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the Marshy family. So, Bucky, take it away. All right. Uh, well, you know, I, I became a golf writer in 1976, and the Marshys had pretty much done their thing by them, by then, but uh, they were well known and i remember going into the pro shop at uh, miami valley and and speaking to gene um or frank uh but i you know i didn't have many lengthy conversations with them or anything but uh, they certainly are a family that has played a huge role in golf in dayton over the years uh gene marshy uh, was the oldest in the family and then there was al and there was T, who is the father of John, and then Frank Marshy, and uh, John Marshy, and so uh, in that order. So uh, I'll just talk to him. Well, the family, the original family was uh, was from Columbus, as I understand it, and it's kind of amazing, but uh, the impression I got from looking at some of the old clips was that uh, they didn't they, they weren't a golfing family until the boys got to school and started to play golf and, and getting and got really interested in it. And so Gene was the oldest, and uh, he uh, was born in uh, in 1905. And then Al came along after that, and uh, Al was the head pro at Walnut Grove Country Club in the 1940s, and also uh, at Urbana. And uh, then T. Marshy, uh, John's father, uh, operated a driving range in Huber Heights, and built the first nine holes at Cliffside and Pentera. And then Frank came along, and uh, Frank uh, was also, of course, from Columbus. He went to Aquinas High School, played on the golf team, and went to Ohio State for a year, and then was taken into the uh, service uh, where he uh, was a gunner, a radio gunner, I'm sorry, a radio gunner aboard a B-24 in World War II and flew 50 missions before returning home. And then he came back and came to Dayton uh, to be with his brother. And uh, and then uh, the next generation, uh, John came along and, and was a head professional uh, at uh, Castle Hills for a long time and now retired. Uh, so John, welcome aboard here this morning. Well, thank you very much and thanks for the reminiscing. That was nice. Okay. Well, I'll talk about Gene first. Uh, Gene uh, uh, was born, in, as I said, in 1905, and uh, I think he died in 1969 and was 64 at the time. Gene Marshy was five foot four and 110 pounds. <laughs> he had gone to Grandview High School in uh, Columbus and caddied as a teenager and worked in the pro shop at Scioto Country Club. 
and then moved to Columbus Country Club. And he came to Dayton uh, in April of 1930 to serve an assistant head pro to Jim Noble at Miami Valley. And uh, by 1936, he became the head pro at Miami Valley and kept that position for 28 years. And uh, in, in 1963, then, he began sharing uh, the job with his brother Frank. Uh, they were associate pros at Miami Valley. So Gene was at Miami Valley uh, for more than 40 years. And we can get into individual things about them as we go. And I just wanted to put sort of a resume out. Now, Al, I don't know a whole lot about. I know he was the head pro at Walnut Grove in the 1940s and at Urbana Country Club, and he, he actually won the uh, MVPGA Stroke Play Championship in 1941. But uh, he actually spent most of his working life in Columbus, so we didn't see much of him, uh, you know, after the 40s. Then uh, T. Marshy, uh, John's father, uh, I, I don't have his when he was born. John, do you know when T. was born? Uh, October 14th, 1914. Okay. October 4th? 14. 14th, 1914. And uh, when did he die? Uh, in uh, November of 1975. Okay. Now, uh, what do you know about T's association with uh, uh, Huber Heights uh, driving range and, in the, and, and building at Cliffside and Pantera? Yeah, I can, well, I can fill you in. Uh, even back a little farther, um, of course, he, you know, the, the family all caddied at Scioto. Um, they, they grew up in Grandview, which is, you know, right on the right head, there, uh, upper Arlington, and all the boys caddied at Scioto, and uh, Gene and Al were, were both assistants. Um, you mentioned a little bit about Al. I can fill in a little bit. Al was a whale of a player. Um, high Open champion, held course records all over the Columbus metropolitan area. Uh, Al was also the pro at Urbana. Uh, he was also at Troy for a little while. Um, and he went back to Columbus and bought a golf course, um, Beacon Light, and, uh, uh, and um, sold it. And then, you know, he kind of just spent his last years, he owned racehorses um, in his well, life. He did. Yeah. Um, and Al passed away very young. Uh, the Marshies weren't struck with the best of health. Uh, you know, all the boys um, struggled a little bit with heart problems. Al died at 49. Uh, of course, Gene, you know, he died at 64 at PGA National. And uh, Frank had a massive heart attack, but technology had, uh, you know, advanced enough that Frank, you know, it, it helped him and he, he lived quite a long life. Frank lived well into his 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was struck with the same thing. He had a heart attack young, early in life, you know, just in his mid-40s. And, uh, and then, you know, fought some health issues for the rest of his life and then died of a heart attack at 61. But uh, my father also was the pro Greenville Country Club in 1940. Well, he was. Yeah. And then the war came along and the war changed a lot of things. Um, you know, he was not able to serve in the military, but he... They moved him to uh, Milwaukee, and he went to work uh, for you know the Defense you know Procurement Act, as they call it, uh, at Cleaver Brooks. There, uh, came back to Columbus and actually worked at uh, Wyandot. Was the pro Wyandot, which is now the home of the Ohio School for the Blind. Uh, oh, 
And so then he got into contracting work uh, in the Columbus area, mainly doing, you know, um, foundations for homes, sewer lines, water lines, things like that. Got very good with a backhoe and an inloader and those kind of things. Um, and then, you know, Frank and Gene had built a driving range in Uber Heights, back to your original point. Okay. They, you know, Gene was slowing down his career. Frank was taking over Miami Valley. So my dad took over what was Marshy's Golf Center, which was really, to be totally honest with you, it was one of the nicest driving rings I ever was part of. We had a beautiful grass area. We had a natural putting green, and that was my job. I took care of the putting green. We had a beautiful miniature golf course. We had batting machines. Um, really nice uh, building, and the building is still there, actually. Uh, and a nice pro shop. Um, it was just a very nice range. And uh, in the Pope um, of Builders came along and offered Gene. Gene owned the ground and offered Gene quite a bit of money to. They developed um, an apartment apartment complexes and a shopping center there. So Gene sold it. Uh, my dad owned the business. He paid my dad for the business. And Gene went to Florida. And when he came back, they were going to scout new land to build a driving range and unfortunately gene passed away that winter so that's when my oh. father got into building golf courses uh-huh. and you know he had the uh the groundwork you know the excavation background oh and yeah he loved doing it he loved sitting on those on that equipment and shaping things and you know that was his he was in his true joy when he was doing that but his idea of building a golf course was you know you build them easy you know, let people have some fun. He wasn't, you know, they were never going to hold a U.S. Open at any course my dad would build, but he looked at it from the standpoint of letting people have fun, uh, you know, and something easy to maintain, you know, to keep the fees down. And, uh, you know, so that, and that was more of his, his idea of golf course development. So. Uh-huh. Well, certainly would cater to more golfers if you build them that way, that's for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, not to, not to get sidetracked, but I think, you know, we got a little bit off balance when we started building golf courses to sell homes instead of sell green fees. And, and you know, to if you're going to buy a home, you want to live next to a, you know, a really nice golf course, which means, you know, that has to have good terrain, it has to have bunkering, it has to have notoriety. And, uh, you know, so I think, you know, they became, they became a little bit difficult. They became a little bit tough to maintain. Uh, you know, and of course that that expense, which raises the fee. You know, it's got us in a little bit of a predicament in this industry. That way, I believe that's my. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, that was true, like at Country Club of the North. Uh, that was a beautiful golf course, but it was tough, and they had trouble maintaining their bunkers. Every time it rained, all the sand from those uh, bunkers came sliding down, and took a lot of time for the crew to restore those absolutely i mean you know i look at people ask me the biggest change i saw in, in my history in the golf business i look at an irrigation system i mean you know when i came into business you know they didn't water fairways they didn't water tees and you maybe had one sprinkler head at a green now mm-hmm. everything's automatic everything's on timers everything's on computer and anytime you water that much, well, that means you got to mow it, and then that means you got to fertilize it, and that means then you got to you got to use pesticides and herbicides. And, and <laughs> you know, I think of what's happened, you know, and and I look at well, it's the irrigation system that really created a lot of this, and uh, you know, the Augustus syndrome, as we all watch the Masters, and 
everybody wants to play a golf course that looks like that, but nobody really wants to pay for one. So, right. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, getting back to the uh, to the older brothers, um, it looks to me, on basis on what he's what he did, was that Frank was the more accomplished player in terms of uh, you know what he did. Uh, he qualified for the PGA Championship five times and was host pro, of course, in 1957 at Miami Valley. And uh, he joined with uh, Bob Service, who was the great amateur from Miami Valley, and they won the Ohio Pro Amateur Championship twice. And then Gene was runner-up in the Miami Valley Match Play Championship twice. And uh, so he was a pretty good he was a pretty good player. And he and Tommy Bryant are, are, are well, Frank and Tommy Bryant are are actually uh, um, credited with the founding of the Southern Ohio chapter of PGA. Um, and and those guys uh, were Gene and Frank. I think were were. Uh, Maybe Gene mostly was instrumental in bringing the PGA to Dayton in '45 and and in '57 uh, because he was involved, you know, with people at the national level. Um, then, um, uh, let's see what else I was going to. So, so I want to get a little bit more about your background. You you were head pro at Cliffside uh, for about six years, I think, right? That, that's correct. I um, I was at Ohio State, and uh, they were on me to declare a major, and I knew I wanted to get in the golf business, um, so I came back home and uh, and went to work at Cliffside. A guy by the name of Jack Wiley had just bought it. My dad, my dad, and Kermit Delk. You, you might be familiar with Kermit Delk. Kermit was a, a ground superintendent in this area for a long time, and and owner of Stillwater. Uh, Ridge in West Milton. Uh-huh. And, and he and my dad built the original nine, and it was a, the land at Cliffside was a pheasant hunting farm, and a guy owned it. And once they got, they just about had it finished, uh, the gentleman's wife took ill, um, and so he had to sell it. So Jack Wiley, who was a Uber contractor, bought it, and his he had the dream of building a golf course development. His idea was he which was well ahead of its time, was to build a golf course and then have home sites around it. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he started that project, and I came back and I went to work for him. And uh, I was just, you know, basically working on the on the crew. Uh, Len Dunaway, another, you know, legend in Len. golf course superintendent. Len and I worked together at Cliffside. We we built we helped build the original eighteen. Um, and you know we we put the irrigation system in. I mean, Lynn and I'd be in the ditch with mud up to our necks most days. <laughs> and, uh, and so you know, and I was playing there. And Jack really liked the way I played and felt like he needed to put me inside. So uh, you know, really wasn't ready for anything like that, but wasn't willing to turn down the opportunity. I I became the head pro mm-hmm. in June of nineteen seventy four. And things were starting to progress. And then, unfortunately, personal issues got in the way with Jack and his family. And and then there was a tug of war. And Jack's life ended up with uh, with the ownership of the golf course. And and so I just didn't really see a future 
been there, and it was time for me to move on. So I spent a year with Len Dunaway at Walnut Grove, working, helping him. He was putting in an automatic irrigation system at Walnut Grove in 1982, so I had that experience. So I went over and, and helped him put that in, and then in 83, uh, I went to NCR as the first assistant. Which was, Who was the head pro at NCR when you went over there? Jeff Steinberg. Oh, yeah. They had just hired Jeff, um, and he was looking for a first assistant. And uh, fortunately, he chose me, and it was a great experience for me. I loved every minute I was at NCR. It was a hard job, uh, but I loved every minute I was there. It was just a great experience. Uh, and then Castle Hills came available, and... Uh, and so I was fortunate enough that I was selected there, and that started a, you know, basically a 33-season run there that was really good for me. I hope Vandalia feels the same way, but I, I really feel fortunate that uh, that I was chosen to go there. You know, wait, wait, were you the first, were you the first pro at Castle Hills? No, uh, Chris Hale was the first pro, and then Bill T was there for three years. Oh, uh, place Bill. Hmm. Did, did Bill T was he a head pro someplace else too? Like uh, yeah, that Bill was at um, he was at a club in Toledo. Escapes me right now, but he was also at Shelby Oaks. Oh my goodness! Yeah, he was at Shelby Oaks before he came to Castle Hills. Mm-hmm. And there were several guys at Shelby Oaks. Oaks. I, a real good player. Bill was Bill was a lot of fun. You know, he really was. Mm-hmm. So then the, you, you uh, were the head pro, and then you were promoted at some point to director of golf. Correct. And did that enable you to put somebody else in the head pro job at that time? Yeah, I had I had hired Ken Hamlin as an assistant, and uh, Ken was retired military, he's retired lieutenant colonel, um, and he became second career guy. Uh, and he um, came in the year we did the renovation, uh, and he was really helpful that year and he got his pga membership and uh he was ready you know i was being kicked up so he was ready to get kicked up so he became the head pro um and ben licklider was there with us for a while before ben went to kentucky uh as an, ben was with us as an assistant and also tim vossler was there um so so yeah it was um it was different being a general manager but i kept control of some of the things I really like to do like merchandising and tournament operations uh, I was able to keep my hand Ken was more daily operations taking care of all the player processing and, and you know the Rangers and starters and uh, golf leagues and that kind of stuff um, and I got to keep my hand in the other end that I really enjoyed yeah hey, that's great and uh, when did you finally retire uh, at the end of uh, 2016 2016. Yeah, it was, it was becoming a, a complicated situation with uh, state, you know, basically the state of Ohio and the way they wanted things to be conducted. And I was, I wasn't an independent contractor, but I operated like one, and it created liability issues, and things, and you know, um, uh, between the city and me and the state of Ohio and and what you can do and what you can't do in terms of of um, you know employees and what employees can get from a contracted employee versus a city so it just got really 
convoluted and uh, yeah, it sounds it sounds that way. To leave anyhow, it was a good time for me to, and it was a good time for them to take over the entire operation. And, and they would have let me stay, honestly, for as long as I wanted to. But I was ready to go, and it was it was the best thing for the operation and for the golf course. Uh, you know that they be able to condense everything under one umbrella. So mm-hmm. it worked out for everybody. You know, so it was a good thing. Yeah. Well, you know, you uh, you were a pretty good player too. I remember when you won the uh, Miami Valley PGA match play. Was it was that at day, uh, was that at uh, Dayton Country Club? No, it was at NCR. At NCR. Okay. I, I just I remember covering that tournament and. Well, yeah, you put the onus on me. You you picked me as one of the favorites because uh, you know you knew that I had history there of uh, you know of working there and knew. Uh-huh. And, and uh, you know. <laughs> I'm sitting there. I, I like to go into things kind of under the radar, and all of us, Bucky puts the placard on my back. But <laughs> you know, that's what sports writers do. They, <laughs> sometimes they just throw the pressure on somebody else and wait to see what happens. Well, I, I thought it was great. I mean, you know, the, you know, friends of mine thought, "Well, he's picking you as a favorite." I said, "Well, you know, that's nice to know that, you know, and uh, and you know, you had a little bit of uh, forecast in you, so." <laughs> so you might as well go ahead and win it then at that well, point. Isn't that what Trevino said? You know, somebody's got to win this tournament. It may as well be me. Right. Who, who did you who did you beat in the final? Uh, Bobby Zimmerman. Bobby Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think about, but that was before he went to Florida. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Before he went, uh, as a matter of fact, about three years later, he was. I think he was going. He qualified for the senior tour. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll be darned. So you you beat Bobby in that final. That was before he went to the senior tour. I'll be darned. Yeah. Very interesting. As you get older, you uh, sometimes I get these years mixed up as to what order they came in and everything. And but I I was there. I know. <laughs> I look at a lot of things and say I knew I was there I just remember half of it I was watching the Reds on TV the other night winning the 76 uh, World Series and I was in New York for the you know for the last two games of those four and uh, I didn't remember a whole lot about the game and I thought gee was I'm losing it so no, I, you know you know as well as I do that in that era that tournament was a big tournament um, you know, the, the match play was, you know, is what we all pointed to every year. And it was, you know, even at one time, I believe Cox TV even televised it. Uh, well, I remember that. Uh, even into the early 70s. And, and uh, yeah, I remember it being a, being a big deal and something I always look forward to. And, it, and match play is such a different animal than stroke play. Um, oh, yeah. You're, psychologically, you just, you have to be prepared for your opponent to do anything at any time, so I think it was just unique enough that uh, that it you know, it had the interest of, of the public and mm-hmm. of TV and of radio and of newspapers. I mean, you know, I think I believe that was still the era of two papers in Dayton. I believe that. Yes, time. it was. Yes, it was. And I know that we. It seemed like that we tended to dominate the coverage, so it was a lot of fun. It really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I grew up up in Fort Laramie, and uh, which is 50 miles north, and uh, 
I remember the 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 Mime Valley match play getting big uh, publicity in the city. Also, uh, they were headline stories in the sports department. I mean, and so I got to know a lot of the players just by reading about them in the paper when I was a teenager. So by the time I got down here, these guys, uh, you know, were guys that I had read about and knew a little bit about. Oh, yeah, they were local heroes. I mean, you talk about guys like El Collins and Jack Orpman and Bobby Wynn and, uh, you know, um, Chuck Fleischer, Mike Piazza, guys like that that were just, yeah, they were, you know, they were gods in my eyes when I was, you know, 14 years old, 15 years old, you know, people I wanted to emulate and be and, and, you know, every year, the same bunch of guys, uh, some of them occasionally would move out of town or something, but it was that same core of guys who were contending every year, and you could kind of follow that. Absolutely. Steve, did you have anything you'd like to contribute to this uh, conversation today? Sure. I'd, I'd love to, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, what we haven't touched on is John's exceptional service to um, – our game uh, from a trustee and leadership position, um, you know, uh, and uh, essentially, John, I, I know that uh, you're a two-time president of the SOPJ, which I think you may be the only one to have ever been that way. And, uh, you know, you've, you've been golf professional a year. Uh, you essentially ended up with so many different things that they put you on the Hall of Fame in 2004. So could you maybe reflect a little bit about your service, and, and, and I think you may have been even in the first uh, conversations with starting Miami Valley Golf Association. So maybe you could speak a little bit about your service to the game as, as a whole outside of Castle Hills. Well, thank you for that. Um, that was really accidental, um, me getting into politics at all, because anybody that knows me knows I'm a, I, I don't, I don't really like the limelight. I, I like being participating. I, I always enjoy being on committees um, for the PGA because you know you could you could do things, but you weren't beholden to a constituency. But yeah. um, a couple people that I really respect pushed me out into the spotlight and said, "If you're going to complain, you need to do. <laughs> you just can't sit back and take pot shots. You need to get inside." And, and they were right. And and so, reluctantly, I, I went forward and I, I did get elected. And, um, you know, and, and the nice thing about the PGA, and, and Steve, you've been through the same series that I've been as, as you being a past president of the, of the Southern High PGA. It's nice to be able to sit in the chairs, watch things be done, because it prepares you for when you get to the top job. Um, and, and so... It just so happened in my tenure that we had a little bit of a rocky road, and, and Steve Steve was a really a lot of help through that because during that transition when we were taking over the management of the association ourselves instead of being managed by a group, um, you know, Steve ran our tournaments the whole year and did a did an amazing job and really served as a liaison for me to uh, to the new executive director who happened to be Ron Stepanek. So um, during that period, it was rocky. We had a lot of we had a lot of tough decisions to make, and uh, but I knew we would come out the other side a lot better, uh, and we did. And, we absolutely and, did. We absolutely we, did. You know, it 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 really. You know, you sometimes you know when you're at your lowest, you go, man, is this is this something I really want to do? But 
you just keep chugging along and chugging along and um, and everything worked out well. Um, I came back the second time only because of job opportunities for people that were, um, you know, that were ahead of, uh, that were actually behind me. Mike Crody, who was the immediate past president, had become the district director. Zach Fink was the sitting president, and he actually had taken a job with Kemper Golf in Chicago. Right. Johnson right. East who was the vice president, um, took a job in Memphis at uh, EPC South, as I recall. Yep. And Steve, I think you had just been elected, and I... And, and to your credit, you said, you know, I'm not, you know, although I'm there, I'm in succession, I would really like to have some time to, uh, to experience this before I take over. And uh, so, you know, they had called me to come back. And the nice thing about being president is once you've been president, you're not afraid of it anymore. You know what you expect. You've been through it. You've, you know, and, and, and it's very easy. And we had a good staff. Um, that really took care of all the nuts and bolts. So, but you know, there's decisions that have to be made. And Steve, I know you as well as you know as well as I do that sometimes that chair gets very lonely. Is that <laughs> it comes to you, and there's a decision that you have to make, and you're not looking over your shoulder at anybody. It's you sitting there, and it's like watching Governor Dewine at these press conferences oh, yeah. that he does. Every day, you know. He's standing there, and he's taking, you know, he's standing in the jungle, taking all the heat they are given, which is what said. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. It gets lonely sometimes, but you know, it comes with the territory, and uh, you know, is what they say is put on your big boy pants and do the right thing. That's exactly right. But Bucky, what he's not telling you is, is unlike my term, which for the biggest issue was adnermit. His term was essentially making that transition from one management company to the other. And I remember, and I think it was you and I, John, it might have been me and Ron going up to uh, Columbus and, and getting all of our records and, and all of our, uh, you know, all of our assets out of an office building in downtown Columbus. And so what John did was exceptional and his leadership through that time period uh, is to be commended and we should never forget it because the pivot that that he was responsible for as far as the SOPGA is concerned was exceptional. And we've been doing nothing but exceptional things since that time period. Um, yeah. I, you know, one thing I've noticed in covering golf for the number of years I have uh, is that some of the guys within a chapter uh, of the PGA are there to be golf pros. And then when they have a tournament, they show up for the tournament and they play and they go home. <laughs> and it takes people like, like John who are willing to administer this uh, without great uh, compensation uh, to keep it all going. And there, there are some people who, who just uh, show up and hope to take some of the money and leave. And <laughs> it, it, life is that way, uh, you know, no matter where you look. And uh, so it really is commendable when when people step forward like that and take leadership positions. So, John, why don't you uh, – I, I, I know you were in one of the first couple meetings about the Miami Valley Golf Association. Do you remember any of that time period? Yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. It was um, – I remember um, – I remember the ladies had organized first. And uh, I remember having a uh, – having one of the um, one of the Dayton Women's Golf Association uh, events at Castle Hills and I, I commended them for you know getting past all the politics 
and forgive me the racism and forming an association that was really inclusive and, and doing what they did for golf. And I remember saying, maybe we can get the men to do something. And then uh, I know that, you know, I believe it was like Dave Novotny, yep. Jerry Swiller, um, and Ron Wilson, and, you know, forgive me, I, I know Phil Hughes. Yep. And um, forgive me, forgive me anybody if I'm leaving you out, but there were there was a group of people like that that were just hardcore good golfers that decided, you know, and I, and I know the USGA was very interested in, in getting something done. Um, I remember the formation meetings at uh, NCR. We sit there and we talk, and and uh, you know, uh, and, and and the one thing I'll say that, I, and it's something I'm really proud of, is that I was the one that that developed the metro that was oh, my idea I said, okay. you know right. my original idea was i wanted it to be played on four different courses around the city you know try to go north south east and west i thought that would be kind of cool but that's kind of the logistically that nightmare to try to pull off but yeah you know i thought you know because yeah it was just an idea out of, out of what cincinnati was doing with their met yeah and uh, and I believe it's still called the Metro. I, I believe is it is it a season? Yeah, it is. is it, as a matter of fact, yeah. our twenty fifth year would be in, is in twenty twenty one. Yeah, but yeah, I remember being part of the advisory board. Ray Rash was part of that yeah. board, yeah. Um, also, and uh, and it was a lot of fun to see something you know start from you know from nothing. I mean, just just basically an idea and a hope. And, and to see what it's become and how big it is and how much you've been able to expand the umbrella so that, you know, the superintendents and the seniors and women are now, you know, you know it, it, it really makes makes a lot of power and a lot of force when you're able to pull that all together like you've been able to do. So, well, you know, you're the one that deserves to be commended because you're, you're basically saving golf in, in the Miami Valley area with your – with all you're doing in terms of staying on top of the of the governor's orders and the and the director of health orders and making sure that golf courses are doing the right thing so that they can stay open and it is a you know an island that we can go to during this troubled time. Absolutely, and I sure appreciate everything you're doing to try to keep people safe and keep them, keep their businesses operating and open because with the announcement a couple of weeks ago Kitty Hawk and Madden leaving that was that floored me yeah, and I know. just What's you know Bucky did you have any feeling about that about that? Uh, <laughs> I guess floored is a good word for it I was just shocked and you know I maybe I shouldn't have been shocked because I know that uh, the uh, cities have been having trouble for years of making any money. In fact, they lose money almost every year. And uh, but I didn't dream that they would close. You know, uh, two two facilities like they did. I uh, you know I still wish that it didn't have to happen that way. But maybe there was no other way to go. Well, it it's definitely a tough thing, and. Um economically and, and, and based on resources and this COVID thing certainly uh, brought that about very quickly. Um, but if, if I might mind and, and, and shift a little bit back to you, John, and, and, and really your, your, your uncles, um, if you grew up, I'm assuming you grew up in Columbus or not for the most Yeah, just north of Columbus in Delaware. Okay. Uh, yeah. What high school did you go to? Uh, well, I, I had, I hadn't, Attended high school. I, we moved here when I was fourteen, and I started my freshman year at Wayne. Okay. I would have been in the Buckeye Valley school system. As, oh, I see. Okay. I actually went to Ostrander, which 
is the home of Ben Curtis. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. Okay. Knew his grandfather well, Bill Black, knew them well. Um, matter of fact, my sisters had him as a, as a teacher, and I Oh. And uh, and my brother played football with, uh, you probably remember Rick Bash, uh, was a real good player from that area up there. He's Ben's cousin, Ben Curtis's cousin, and okay. my brother played football with Ron Bash, who's Rick's dad. And so, uh, yeah, but I, I got here and got to Wayne for one year and then ended up at Bethel and graduated from Bethel High School. Okay. 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 So you might not have seen your uncles very much, or did you? I mean, I mean were you? Well, going- I did. We, um, I mean, the Marshy family was a big family. There were 10 kids. And actually, um, as a little bit of a sideline, there was, there was an original Frank. Uh, mm-hmm. Frank is actually Frank, too. Um, the original Frank uh, was killed by a trolley car when he was uh, 12 years old. Oh, wow. Um, and the, um, the striking thing was is that my Aunt Gina, there was Gina and then Gino, um, my Aunt Gina had a pen with the picture of the original Frank, and he was the spitting image of Frank, too. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was scary when I saw that pen. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, we had a lot of family reunions. Uh, okay. All the girls, the Marshy girls, there was one in Cincinnati, one in Piqua, and then the rest of them were in Columbus. Uh, and we'd had a lot of family get-togethers. Gene happened to be my godfather, so... Okay. Uh, I, I got to see Gene quite a bit. I didn't get to see Frank as much, um, you know, but uh, as a family, there was a lot going on. Okay. Um, it was a big Italian get-together, and I knew of their of their background. You know, Gene was, um, Gene in his day was, was really, as Bucky was alluding to, with the personality. Gene had a TV show here in Denver. Oh. I know you remember the golf green. Uh, oh, yeah. That show. Well, it started out as Gene, as the Gene Marshy show, um, and he would do he would have guests and he would do golf tips at that location down on Wilmington Pike, um, and then later down the road, the golf green became a a uh, like a par three competition. When I was a teenager, you you put your name in and they'd select three golfers to come down, and you'd have they'd have a closest to the pen contest as i recall so but but that started out as the gene marshy show sponsored by pepsi um and gene was just well known he played golf with perry como in the winter uh, tony penna uh those were the days when pga national and i know steve you've been there was was uh what is now what's called i think it's called Balen isle now right. but it was jd it became jd that but they all you know got there in the winter and there was a lot of celebrities down there in the winter and so gene got well known um okay. you know and as bucky said he was 5'4 110 pounds bought his clothes in the boys department i'm sure he um, did <laughs> i had that thought because we share height right, not weight much bigger you see the two of them and you you know from behind you swear they were 12 years old but uh, <laughs> you know they were they were really really close friends tommy bryant who was the longtime pro of moraine and right. a, you know and, a, and again as, as bucky said it was tommy bryant and gene marshy formed the Southern High PGA, and it was it was due to the war because they couldn't get gas and they couldn't get rubber for tires. Right. So they said, you know, it puts a real real burden on us living in Cincinnati and Dayton to try to get to Cleveland or Toledo or Akron right. for meetings and events and things like that. So that's why the PGA of America sanctioned uh, the new section and dividing because it was, it was, there was one section, it was Ohio, and they divided it into two then. And uh, as things come back, I know there's been talk for years of, of recombining it. I, I don't ever see that happening uh, in the near term, but 
yeah. you know, as, uh, to uh, to get administrative expenses together, it might be the smart thing to do. But, you know, the rumor I has think it on that. The geography is better the way it is. So. Well, you know, the funny thing, the rumor has it on that, and I don't know if you can if confirm this, that the way that they determined the southern and northern Ohio was they basically folded the map in half. And that was the line. And it, it actually goes in almost just a little north of Columbus. So, like, you know, uh, anything outside 270 uh, would be technically part of northern Ohio, but it's so Columbus-ish. Uh, do, you, do you remember that, or do you, do you have any yeah, knowledge that, of that? Um, well, actually, it, you know, that sounds like the way they would have done it. But yeah. I know that we, you know, uh, basically Route 36 was considered, you know, the line. Um, but you're right. It, it, it keeps, you know, we kept chipping away at Northern Ohio and they got a little bit upset with they it. Did. But, you know, that was more the way that was because Delaware considers itself part of Columbus, not part of Cleveland. Right. Uh, you know, so, you know, I remember we had a little bit of a to do when, uh, you know, with the Double Eagle because they were north of the border and they were adamant that they were going to be in the Columbus area. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it got to be a little bit of a political, you know, mess um, because Northern Ohio didn't want to give up the territory or give up the dues or sure. you know all that, and, and so you know I was I was going through the officers' chairs when that was becoming a problem, but you know it, it is what it is, and and you know finally eventually the development stopped, and and I think things are pretty stable now. But, you know, if you're living in Marysville or somewhere like that, and there's an event, you know, 15 miles away, or there's an event in Toledo. Where would you want to go? It is. It's that simple. So. You know, and it's the same thing with Cincinnati has with the Northern Kentucky players. Sure. It's, you know, there's always going to be a border, and there's always going to be, you know, a conflict over it. Exactly. Exactly. Same way with the amateur associations and well. Yeah, I can well believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, gentlemen, if it's all right, um, I'd, I'd like to uh, bring our uh, podcast to a close. And thank you both for being here. Oh, thank you. Very thank good. you for inviting us. Thanks again for listening to our podcast today. Thanks to Bucky Albers and John Marshy for being with us. For additional information, visit miamivalleygolf.org. Until the next time, keep it in the short grass.